Christmas is one of those magical musical times of year. Uh, just everywhere you go, you hear the Christmas music playing. And we try to be a part of that by bringing uh, Christian music into the midst of all of that. Not all of those tunes are necessarily Christian tunes. But you know, you, they all flood through our minds. We all know the various ones that we're talking about. <clears throat> There's an interesting, hist interesting history, but I won't go into it, about a particular song we hear uh, throughout this Christmas season. It's called The Twelve Days of Christmas. You know that one that has the countdown, you eventually get to the partridge and pear tree. It's fun to sing the first three or four or five times you do it. <laughs> and then it kind of grates on your nerves just a little bit. But of all of the tunes of Christmas, I want you to have that one in your mind today. Because as I share some of the things I want to share in relation to the message the Lord's put on my heart, that tune keeps echoing in your mind. And I'll show you why in just a few moments. You know, the text I read today is not one you usually read at Christmas time. But there is a, a, a message hidden here in the monotonous begots that I want you to grasp. Have you noticed nowadays that fewer and fewer people have what would you call a really respectable pedigree? You know what a pedigree is, remember? That's a, a clear family bloodline. Remember years ago, Art Linklater made famous on his show, Kids Say the Darndest Things, and he was asked the kids, uh, does your pet have a pedigree? And some of the things they would come up with were just absolutely hilarious. Well, a pedigree is to, to show a clear lineage. And, and in the case with an animal, back to a very famous uh, uh, mom or pop. And in Jewish history, these pedigrees were really, really important for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, if you had any aspiration to be a priest, you had to be of a certain lineage to do that. But most specifically, anyone who would claim to be the Messiah had to be able to prove categorically that he was of the house and the lineage of David, that you could trace his bloodline, his pedigree, back through David. And that was imperative. And so we see here in, in the Gospel of Matthew, one of these genealogies, and this is traced through Joseph, the stepfather. In Luke, you see a, a genealogy. That's Mary's genealogy. But on both sides of his family, Jesus had a clear genealogy that traced him through David. Why? Because of the promise that was made to David, that the Messiah would be of his lineage and of his kingdom. There would be no end. So pedigrees are important. But nowadays, they're getting harder and harder to track and even make fun of it. Jeff Foxworthy made it very popular to say, if your family tree doesn't have a fork in it, you might be a redneck. Well, that's not the problem in most of our family trees. The problem is we got way too many forks in it. The boys, one of the boys, I think it was Chris, came home from school one day, said, Dad, I've got a project. Said, I, we need, I need to face, uh, trace my family tree back three generations. And I told him what any knowledgeable father would say. I'd say, go see your mother. But that wasn't the reason. The reason was, I said, sons, my family tree is so mixed up, I'm not sure I understand it all. You see, my mom was married and divorced seven times. Uh, my, my dad married and divorced five times. And so I've got 
paths and steps and such that I've never met before. But you know, it's a project for school, so we sat down and we did it. You know, when I was growing up, that was a bit of an embarrassment. Most everybody I knew had a mama and a daddy living together, married in the home together. But the world in which you and I are ministering in today, that's the minority. That's a minority in our world. When, when we're ministering to our children and youth on Wednesdays especially, and we look out there and we see so many of them that have steps this and half this and whatever, or they're living with grandparents or aunts or uncles and such, it's a different world that we're living in now. And what, what I bore as a particular shame when I was young has become more the norm in the world in which we're living now, that families are so very, very fractured. Well, there was a time that you would keep those fractured limbs of the family tree hidden as best you could. <laughs> those were things you really just not want to expose and to talk about. But I want you to know something. Jesus' family tree is riddled with shame and scandal. Yeah. I want you to look with me here today. And having that little tune, the partridge in a pear tree, in your mind. <laughs> because I want to start with five women. Write that down. Five women. And so that, what was the big deal about that? Well, in our day, it wouldn't be a very big thing to trace a uh, family heritage back through women. But in Jesus' day, that was shameful. Family trees were tracked through the men. And if in your family tree... You trace some of that through a woman, it was a scandal. It meant that a child was born Ill illegitimate or there was something that was really nasty going on there. And here we find in Jesus' family tree, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five women mentioned. Let's look at those for just a moment. First, we have Rahab. Rahab is famous for being a harlot. A woman of the night. You remember the story there in Joshua chapter 2 and also in chapter 6 where Joshua was sending out spies into Jericho to find out what the fortifications and all were like. And these spies were about to be captured and they were hidden by Rahab in her brothel. Now, we don't know whether those two men went there professionally or whether they were there just seeking a door to hide behind. We really don't know and won't know till we get to heaven. But we do know this, that here was a woman who was as ungodly as a woman could be, but she had a healthy respect for the God of Israel. And because of her fear of God of Israel, she hid the spies. And she saw to it that they would get away carefully. She redirected those looking out for them and trying to find them. And because she had been so gracious, she was instructed to hang a scarlet thread out her window. And that when, when Joshua and his army came, she and her family, all those who would be around in that one home, would be spared. And this is the Rahab we're talking about right here. History tells us that Rahab was an extremely beautiful woman. Tradition tells us that she later married Joshua and hence became a part of the Lord Jesus' family tree. Uh, we see a prostitute, a sinner of the worst kind, who is granted grace and becomes an integral part of Jesus' family tree. And this blight is turned into a blessing. 
And then look down a little further. You see another woman. Her name is Ruth. You see Ruth? The book that bears her name, chapters 122. It tells a moving story of, uh, of Naomi and her husband Elimelech. This is a day for hard names, by the way. Elimelech, I hope you're impressed. And <laughs> there was a famine in the land of Israel. And so to escape, they went to the land of Moab. Now, Moab was a, an enemy of Israel. Always had been. Nothing good ever came out of Moab. They were horrendous in their idolatry and all the things they did. But they had food. And Elimelech and Naomi, they went there. And while they were there, uh, their, their two sons married Moabite women. That was uh, scandalous all by itself. Well, then all three of the men died. Elimelech and his two sons died. And Naomi decided, you know, I need to go back home. I'll go back to nothing. I'll live in poverty. And so she released the, the, the three girls. Y'all go back to your father's home. You go back to where you can marry again and you can be cared for. Well, two of them in tears, but they agreed to do that. But Ruth would not leave. She would not leave Naomi, her mother-in-law. Loved her so dearly. So she went with Naomi back to Israel. She knew she would be an outcast. She knew she would be cursed. She knew she would not be welcome anywhere she went, but she was not going to abandon her mother-in-law. Such a sweet love. Such a wonderful story. When Naomi arrived, she was in utmost abject poverty. But something that was allowed for the really, really, really poor was they could go into the fields, and after the harvesters had been through, the harvesters were required to leave a certain amount of grain behind. And, and people could come behind them, and they could pick up the grain that had been left behind. It was called gleaning. And so she sent Ruth out to glean, but she said, don't go anywhere. I want you to go to my cousin's field. His name is Boaz. And she went to glean in Boaz's fields. The, the story of Ruth is a beautiful love story it's a wonderful high drama but here's what i want you to get here a foreigner marries boaz boaz and ruth get married they give birth to a man named obed obed gives birth to a man named jesse and jesse gives birth to david the king so here ruth a foreigner hated and despised because of her race, is in the family tree of Jesus. So we've got one sinner, one foreigner, and look next, and her name's not mentioned, but it says, David gave birth to Solomon by Uriah's wife. Now, you and I know her name. That's Bathsheba. Bathsheba, and the story's told there in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, how David, late at night, had some insomnia. He went on the upper level. The king's house was higher than anybody else's, and he looked down on, uh, in the neighborhood over here, and here was a woman bathing at night on top of her roof. Now, that was not necessarily a bad thing. That was something that often was done, and nobody would see except prying eyes. And David was filled with lust. And so he... he pushed himself on this beautiful woman, and when he found out she was pregnant, 
He could not bear the shame of that. So what did he do? He had her husband go off into battle, but he kept coming back alive. So he said, look, the next time you're going out into battle, you put Uriah up on the very front and you withdraw so that he'll be killed. And he was. He was killed. And then David, to do the noble thing, he then took Bathsheba then as his wife to where, oh, and oh everybody, oh, what a wonderful king we have that loves his generals in such a way and, and he'll care for their family. <laughs> Pardon me, that wasn't in the notes. All right. And he, he got away with it, except that God knew what had happened. God knew what had happened, and God revealed what had happened to the prophet Nathan. And Nathan came and exposed him, and, and David confessed and, and, and such, but the child, the child died. The child died. But he did, in that union with Bathsheba, gave birth to Solomon, the wisest of all of the kings of Israel. So here we've got a prostitute. <laughs> Goodness, it's getting worse. We've got a prostitute, we've got a foreigner, and now we've got an adulteress up the family tree of Jesus. But then we're not done yet. Go down a little further and you see the name Tamar. Do you see it, T-A-M-A-R? Tamar, there's two of them in your Bible. And this is about the, the second of those found in Genesis chapter 38. It's Genesis 38 paints a picture of a woman who has been wrong, but is so conniving and so deceitful. I mean, it's something that they don't even write this kind of stuff on modern daytime TV. An incredible convoluted story. You have to read that to get it all where through her conniving and deception, she brought justice. She justified what she did because she was seeking justice for herself. A sinner, a foreigner, an adulteress, a deceiver. Well, thank God there's a little redemption in here because the last woman mentioned is none other than the Mother Mary, Mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most gracious lady of all times, as sweet and innocent as anyone could be. And we tell the tale at Christmas time and we bathe it in all of the folklore that's gone around it. But listen to me very carefully. Mary's pregnancy was scandalous. She got pregnant before she was married. That was horrific. Now, you and I know that was of the Holy Spirit and there was nothing immoral or anything done about that. But in the eyes of the world who would read this, she was up there just as bad as Tamar and the rest of them. Five women. Get that tune in your mind about the parches of a spare tree. We're going to start working down now. Because not only does genealogy have five women, it has four scoundrels. I mean, some of the worst. Their names are, are the epitome of evil in all of the land. And they're in Jesus' family tree. The first is Jehoram. That's 2 Chronicles 21. Jehoram had a godly father, but he was a terribly wicked, wicked man. There were seven boys in that family, and, and his father had given a different part of the kingdom to each one of the boys to rule. Jehoram wanted it all. He wanted it all. And so he systematically had every one of his brothers killed. 
to where he could inherit all of the land. His sins were so awful that God struck him with a horrible stomach disease and he died in terrible agony. How would you like somebody with that reputation of your family tree? And then look down, there's Ahaz. You see Ahaz? Second Chronicles 28. Ahaz's name is legendary with wickedness. And the most wicked thing he did was marry a woman by the name of Jezebel. And Ahaz and Jezebel together were two of the, the, the most horrendous, demonically inspired people anywhere in your Bible. And when you put a man and a woman's name together you, of wickedness and horrible things they've done, Ahaz and Jezebel go together. More modern Bonnie and Clyde, okay? This would be the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. Jezebel was notorious for her wickedness. She was evil incarnate and led all of Israel astray to worship foreign deities, idols, and such. Ahaz, his idolatry was of the worst sort. He sacrificed his sons to the demon Molech. The idol for Molech was kind of like the happy Buddha, big fat belly right here on the inside. It was hollowed out, and it was heated up with, with uh, like a furnace. And the worshiper would bring the newborn child and lay it on the lap of the idol, and it would literally fry. This is Ahaz. And Jezebel chanting in the background in a frenzy. Well, we'd just love to have him up your family tree. And then you go down further, and there's Manasseh, 2 Chronicles 33. Hezekiah was Manasseh's father, and he was, a, he was a good man. He tried to revive the worship of God, and he tore down all the idolatrous shrines. He forbade the worship of, of anything other than the Lord God. But as soon as Manasseh came to power, at 12 years of age, he undid all of the good his father had ever done before him. He went right back to the idolatries, the sexual perversions. He built altars and set up idols. He practiced human sacrifice on his own children as well. And when God had had quite enough of that blasphemous man, he allowed Assyria to invade the land. Manasseh was taken away captive. He had a, a fish hook run through his nose and attached to a chain, and he was led away with the chain and the fish hook in his nose. There's a little glimmer of brightness, though, in that story. After he was taken away, he did realize the evil that he had done, and he confessed and repented. God worked it out so that Manasseh would allow, be allowed to come back uh, to Israel. What tells me is God's grace and his hope can be extended to the vilest and most wicked among us. And then we have Ammon. Ammon was Manasseh's son. You would think after seeing your father go through all he did, being led away with the fish hook through the nose, and, and, all, and seeing his father finally repent and confess, you would think he'd say, whoa, I need to wake up to what's going on around. No. Ammon was bad, as worse than his father. 
No sooner had his father died than Ammon was back to the old ways. Ammon's sins were even worse and more vile than anyone before him. His rule was so corrupt, his own leaders assassinated him. What a list of scoundrels. Five women, four of the worst scoundrels in the Old Testament. That's who's in your family tree, Jesus? <laughs> Can I shake it a little bit and find anybody worth talking about up there? Well, the good news is, yes, you can. We find three revivalists, three who brought great revival to Israel. The first one of those was Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat reigned for 25 years, and he, he brought peace. They, they, had, they had not had peace since Solomon had died. He brought peace to the nation, ending all the wars, especially between Israel and Judah. He was best known as one of the kings who always sought the Lord's direction, especially in, in chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles when there was a, a great battle in front of them. Rather than gathering together all of his war council and his generals and all together and come up with a war plan, what did he do? He gathered together the religious leaders and he said, boys, we're going to pray. We're going to pray and ask God how to deal with this terrible onslaught that's coming on us. And God said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to get your army all together and everything. But before they march into battle, I want you to put the choir up front. And saying, oh, Lord be <laughs> And you're going to sing that the battle belongs to the Lord. And that faith that he walked in brought the deliverance that they had prayed for. This is Jehoshaphat. And, and then look down. There's Hezekiah. 29 years that he ruled. And it was the pinnacle of Judah's history. Uh, he repaired and purified the temple. Uh, he restored the worship of the Most High God. He renewed the vows of the people to come before the Lord and pronounce their vows to him. He had all the local shrines and the high places destroyed. And Israel finally had a sense that they had a God that loved them and they were belonged to. That, that was Hezekiah. And, and then look down a little further, and I want you to see Josiah. After Hezekiah came the scoundrels of Manasseh and, and, and Ammon. But then Josiah came to rule when he was eight years old. Eight. Eight years old. And he chose right away that he would go back to his grandfather's way of ruling, seeking the Lord in everything that he did. He chose the ways of godliness. When he was 12 years old, he began a religious campaign to restore godliness to the nation. It had been so long since the true worship of God had happened in the temple. Nobody remembered the laws of God. And so Josiah claimed it's time for us to renew and restore the temple. And so they were going in and they repairing and restoring it, and they found the book of the law of God. And they brought it to him, and they read it to him, and he wept, and on his knees he confessed the sins of the whole nation as well as his own heart and cried out to God. 
and he had all of Israel to come together in a great, a, a, a great gathering. And they stood and they listened as the word of God was read. And revival that had never happened before came to the nation. That was Josiah. The one time that he didn't seek the Lord the way he should led to his eventual death. But his life is known of seeking what would the Lord have us do. Five women, four scoundrels, but three revivalists. And then I want you to look here, two patriarchs. Two patriarchs, Abraham, the first one. Abraham, the father of two very different and divergent faiths. The father of Ishmael, which led to the Muslim faith. The father of Isaac, that led to the Jewish faith. Both of these nations claim him as their common father. So he's a patriarch to both of those religious ways of life. Where he followed the Lord and was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, Mount Moriah. Today you can go there in the Mosque of Omar is right there, that place. You could visit that very site still today. It's held sacred by the world's three largest faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And it was to Abraham that the promise was made that through your seed, through your descendants, shall all the world, Jew and Gentile alike, all the world will be blessed. And then there's David. Then there's David. Man after God's own heart. He wasn't, he wasn't perfect. <laughs> Boy, we've already talked about some of his sins, and that was just one of them. But he really sought the Lord, even though he would mess up, he'd get on his face before God and genuinely confess and repent and be restored. A man after God's own heart. And the man through whom his loins would be born the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Five women, four scoundrels, Three revivalists, two patriarchs, and there's not a partridge in this pear tree. But there is a redeemer. There is a savior who is Christ the Lord. Emmanuel, God with us in our presence and us in his presence. God with us, the king of glory. I want to get to the bottom line. Here's what this is all about. Jesus is in the business of redeeming bad pedigrees. He's in the business of transforming broken lives. He's in the business of absolutely changing evil incarnate to purity and blamelessness. It doesn't matter who's up your family tree. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how vile your life has been. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can cover all your sin. You know that Christmas is about Jesus being born. 
But do you know why? God himself wrapped himself in the skin of humanity to live a sinless life for the purpose not giving you an impossible example to follow, but to one day taking your sins upon himself and taking the full punishment of your sins on himself when he died on the cross. And then to rise three days later, victorious over death, hell, sin, and the grave, to where he could offer the gift of Christmas to you. Eternal life, salvation, cleansing, hope. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and in your family tree, there's five women, four scoundrels, three revivalists, two patriarchs, and your Savior who has adopted you into the family of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know him as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now. Bow your heads and let's pray together. Dear God, what a pedigree. But it tells me what I have done and what my parents have done and great-grandparents and all the way down, it can't stand in the way of your grace and mercy being shed in our lives. It's not a matter of what we deserve. What we deserve is eternal death and hell but it's a matter of what you freely give. You give us your love and you give us your grace. So right now, we ask you, Lord Jesus, will you come into our hearts? We confess our sins to you. We ask you to come and cleanse us and forgive us. We dare to believe that when you died on the cross, it was to take our sins upon yourself. And you rose again so that we could have your very life. Come into our heart right now, Lord Jesus. Cleanse us and forgive us. And be our master, be our redeemer. Let us know that there's no evil, either up our family tree or in our life, that you can't handle. We dare to believe this. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen.